You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. In our community, over the last two months, we've had two teenagers make final decisions over their lives. And those decisions are made because sometimes we feel like we have no way of processing the feelings that we have. We have nobody who will listen. Or we're just afraid to talk about those feelings. Women marry students. It's important you get this too, right? This feelings and facts thing. All of us here in the room, all of us, need to know the feelings and the facts. And sometimes we have to learn how to place the facts over the feelings so that the facts, so that the feelings are in submission to the actual facts. They're still going to be real and we're still going to hold them and that's okay. But they have to be placed in submission to something. We can't control having emotions. We have them. We're actually made by God to have them. The neurochemicals in our body, the hormones in our bodies that are provoked when something external happens, we are literally made by God in our brains and in our nervous systems to have emotions, but we can influence the emotions we have if we learn how. But too many of us have been taught growing up, too many of us have been taught growing up that we should choke our emotions down. There's a little book that's for children, and I tried to get the picture up here, but it's, um, I forget the name of the book, but we actually had it when Ian was born, and I threw it away because there's a little picture in it of a little, of a little bear crying, and it says, well, I want to I be accurate with it, because I want you to see, I'm not just making this up, because you may be like, oh, you know, that's not me, or oh, that's not the way it is, or oh, that's not how I was raised, and that's, that's fine, that's wonderful. But this book says, it has a little, a little animal crying, sitting in a chair, and it says, I wanted to cry, but I didn't. I was brave instead. What's the message? If you cry, you're not brave. And who doesn't want to be brave? And if that's the message we subtly tell our children, then what we've learned because of how brains work is we can cause harm to how brains develop. And brains can develop in such a way that the emotional centers of the brain are learned learn very quickly that they don't really have a role and a place in someone's life. And I don't know if you know much about how this works, but brains are muscles, and just like muscles that go unused atrophy, neuro networks that go unsparked, atrophy. Because the brain goes, oh, I guess we don't need that anymore. How many of you have ever heard that men don't cry? Right. And that a lot of times is the, the statement that is made. Because if you cry as a man, you're seen as what? See, everybody knows, weak. Men can't be vulnerable. I mean, really, imagine yourself going to a job interview, and they're like, hey, how are you? I'm like, name one thing about yourself. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very vulnerable. Like, the employer's not going to be like, oh, you're hired. Like, like that's what I want to hear, because that's not how it works. I'll give you an example. Now, in my home, with, in, in, well, in Allison's home in which I live, um, <laughs> we, 
we, we, we, raise in, we, we raise in to fill all the fills. We have always wanted him to fill all the fills. And we've wanted him to fill them because feelings are good. And we've just tried to help him sort it out with names. So I'm the kind of dad that's like, okay, if you play the game and you lose the game, when you get in the car, cry it out, man, because I get the feelings. I get the intensity. I get the, I get the stress hormones and the dopamine and all the things that in you. Brother, just cry it out. I'm not one of those dads who are like, son, don't cry about it. I'm not. I'm all about the feelings, and I always will be. Matter of fact, I may even start crying right now talking about it. That's how much I believe in crying. Um, but, like, when it comes, but there was this one time when Ian was eight years old, and he wanted to play a pickup game at Kidsburg. He had never played a pickup game before, but he wanted to play a pickup game. He's a good little basketball player, and he was, good, but he was like, that tall when he was eight years old. And, um, and he wanted to play this pickup game, and I was like, all right, buddy, but here's the thing. You know how Dad's all about, you know, showing the emotion and crying and doing all that? It was like, yeah, I was like, check it out. You can't cry at a pickup game. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. You cry in a neighborhood pickup game, what are they going to do to you? They're going to put you, they're going to eat your lunch. Like, they're going to destroy you. Like, that's the code, right? And so, Ian was like, well, no, no, I don't think I will then. We were cool, so we went home. But then we got there, and he's like, I think I want to play. So I turned around, and he got out there. And by then, thanks be to God, by the providence of God and the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit, there was only two people there, a dad and a kid. But the kid was like this tall. I kid you not, he was about my height. The dad was like the tallest man I've ever seen in human history. He was tall, but he wasn't that tall. But the kid was tall. And Ian's like this tall, for real. He's like, like under four, I mean, I probably wasn't under four feet. That would be like toddler. But he was small. And he gets on the court, and he's taking it to this kid. Because Ian, you know, he's taking it to the kid. And the kid gets mad, which is fine. I get that. And the kid tosses Ian. Like in the air, off the court, Ian tumbleweeds off the court. Knee comes up with his knee bloody and pink, and he looks at me, and I know that face. I know that face, and I look at him, and I'm like. <laughs> and the dad sitting next to me leans in and goes, tell him not to cry. Tell him not to cry. Not right now. Not right now. Tell him not to cry. Like two dads, like, like we got each. I'm like, I'm crying, bro. Like tell him, like. And, and, and he, and he kind of he kind of tuck it in, and he, and he, and he, and he did it, and, and he, he beat the kid in, in, in one-on-one, so we didn't have to do that at the end. But then I felt like I had to say, now, buddy, like, I am pro-crying. If you want to cry about that, you can. And he was like, no, nah, I wanted to do it on the court, um, <laughs> but, but, but I'm, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. And, and that's the thing that, that's true about emotions, so I want to make one statement before we get more deeply into this. There is an aspect that emotions are socially constructed. Does that make sense to you? We talked about social construction before, so if you missed that, I'm sorry. Uh, you can catch that later. But outside forces can influence how we understand what to do with what we feel. Does that make sense? So if we're raised by people who tell us we aren't allowed to cry, we should suck it up, buttercup, and do better because, you know, you can't see people, you know, see you crying because it makes you weak or vulnerable, then we will live our lives with that message in our head. We know that we can't cry in certain environments because if we do, it creates certain stigmas. And so when we're in those environments, we know not to do those things. We know to choke those feelings down. But like that Coca-Cola, what happens when we choke feelings down? They will surface. They'll either surface in irritable bowel syndrome through the vagus nerve that's literally in our belly. Or they will surface in headaches, or they will surface in other health ways. We will not sleep, and if we don't sleep, what will happen? You start getting sick, you see how this goes? And so then we are left with the conclusion somehow that emotions are bad. 
Like feelings are bad. And you even hear it in this false doctrine of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. False doctrine. You know why it's false teaching? Because there's no such thing as biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. There's only Christ-like humanhood. Christ is who all people are supposed to be who follow Jesus to be like. And I know what we're doing with these little subcategories of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, but let me ask you something. Is the fruit of the Spirit contingent upon gender identities? No, because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on, regardless of whatever you identify. Regardless, it doesn't matter. It's Christ-like humanhood. And what we learn in Christ is that Christ is one who feels, and Christ is one who has emotions. But we've been formed by a culture of stoicism. Everybody say stoicism. Now, stoicism is a $10 word, and um, that, that describes a group of people called the Stoics. So I want to give you this. So back in Jesus' day, so stay, bear with me just for a moment because we need some history. Back in Jesus' day, Greco-Roman society believed that the highest possible value and characteristic one could possess was self-control. Everybody say self-control. And self-control was principally aimed toward having control over oneself concerning one's emotions. You with me? And so in Greco-Roman society, men were considered wise and esteemed and held in high regard if they exercised control over their emotions. But women, you know, women were considered to be more emotional than men and unable to be self-controlled when it comes to their emotions. Let me pause. I'm just telling history. I do not believe that. Y'all with, y'all with me on that? Like, I need you to know that, seriously. I am sincerely trying to outline how history worked. This was the trope that was set, and this was the tone that was held. This was the society that was built. So if a man was unable to use self-control over his emotions, that man in Greco-Roman society was written off as effeminate or weak. So if a man cried or if a man could not even control his anger, he was considered a man of a weak constitution. Does that sound familiar, by the way? And it goes back as old as Socrates. Now, Socrates, and I can appreciate the brothers, uh, I mean, I, I, I identify with the brothers abnormally large forehead here, um, but this picture of Socrates, I want you to see this. This thing goes back as far as Socrates. So when Plato wrote about Socrates' life, Socrates is dying, and his friends can't control their tears, and they start crying. Listen to what Socrates says. What conduct is this, you strange men? I sent the women away chiefly for this reason, that they might not behave in this absurd way. For I have heard that it's best to die in silence. Keep quiet and what? Be brave. Because we have this idea that to somehow be emotionally unavailable or to suck down or chuck down, chuck down or swallow down our emotions is somehow an exercise of bravery. We have steel resolve. That's the language. Now, all of this came from an actual philosophy called Stoicism. At the time the gospel stories are written, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, it was believed that the philosophical movement that was the most impactful, that was the dominant lens through which every citizen of the Greco-Roman Empire understood themselves and understood society was through the philosophy of the Stoics. 
It's called Stoicism. And Stoics had a big philosophical problem with emotions, which I find a bit ironic. They had a lot of feels about the feels. And they thought emotions demonstrated a lack of self-control too. And for them, emotions were not considered rational or thoughtful responses. Now, here's the thing. They couldn't deny like they couldn't deny involuntary, unconscious, bodily responses to circumstances like tears. They obviously couldn't deny tears. They also couldn't deny the feeling to want to laugh. So the Stoics went through great pains to try and categorize all this. And so they had a category for tears and laughter, and they called them, are you ready for this? Pre-emotions. And then they took all the other emotions that people feel, or should I say that unself-controlled people feel, and they categorized them into four categories, and then they had subcategories, right? It gets real, real complicated. But they believed that emotions could not be properly controlled, even though they could be controlled, but not properly. And therefore, the goal of the human experience was to root out emotions, because that would exercise self-control. And if you were a self-controlled person, then, bro, you were trustworthy. You should lead. And that is the frame through which the world was seen. Now, there was some debate about this, not to get too nerdy about this thing, but there was a good bit of debate going on about how all this would work out with other modern philosophers like Plutarch who held on to what Aristotle taught. Aristotle taught that emotions can be good. So, for example, the Stoics believed that pity, that pity was uh, uh, an emotion that needed to be ruled, rooted out. Aristotle believed that pity could lead to virtue. But the dominant thread, so they weren't the only guys and gals, they weren't the only people thinking about this, but the dominant thread of the day was that emotions needed to be rooted out because emotions, being emotional and being rational, are opposed to one another. That's what they believed. All right, that's the world Jesus walked in. So now, I would like for you to consider that that is the world that Jesus walked in, and I would like for you to consider what you're about to see in the scriptures concerning Jesus. Because if this is the world Jesus walked in, and if we believe Jesus to be God in human flesh, which is God incarnate, which for us is God with us, then what we'll find is that Jesus shows that being rational and emotional are not in opposition, but instead go together and are at times one and the same. I mean, sometimes thinking isn't rational. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, those of you who won't admit it. <laughs> like, no, I'm always rational about thinking. And sometimes emotion is rational. So let's look at Jesus. Let's look at emo his emotional responses. All right. Matthew chapter 11, verse 18. For John, okay, here's, let me pause. I'm not going to go into context. I've got all these notes for you if you want to look at them. I've got footnotes, everything for you if you want them. But I just want you to see Jesus. We're not going to deal with the teaching of this too much. I want you to see Jesus. This is an observation of what you see in Jesus. Jesus says, for John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Now, what does this tell you? This is going to make some people uncomfortable because of how we're taught about emotions. But here's the thing. Jesus liked to party. He liked a good party. And I don't believe Jesus walked into a room that was a feast because feast is a party and said, oh, this is, this is enjoyable. 
This is a nice party. Now, when you watch movies with Jesus in it, which is always a white Jesus, white Jesus walks around, and he's emotionless everywhere he goes most of the time. Am I wrong? Rarely do you see a depiction of Jesus. <laughs> Y'all need to stop. Rarely do you see a depiction of Jesus where Jesus is actually having a good time. But don't you think that Jesus would go to a feast and party and have a good time? Because he talks about joy. I think so. Yes, all the things. I don't see Jesus going, oh, this is, we should all celebrate. <laughs> let's, let's, let us celebrate together. But that's how we picture him. Now, here's my question. Why is it then do we impose our understanding of what's proper when it comes to emotions on Jesus, who is God, doesn't that share, doesn't that reveal something to you? All right. It's not it. It's not the only thing. I'd be willing to bet Jesus wasn't stoic at parties. Luke 7, verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Everybody say amazed. amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. Now, I want to give a little nerd moment. The Greek word for the word amazed, it's what's called, it's a verb, but it's, it's in the indicative move. And in Greek study and in Greek language, when a verb is an indicative move, it's simply saying that the word I'm choosing is what's actually happening in his body. So when the verb amaze is chosen, it is communicating us in the Greek that Jesus didn't just feel something, Jesus expressed something. I seriously doubt Jesus was like, whoa. That's awesome. Now, Keanu Reeves may talk like that. <laughs> but the Greek language here states that Jesus would have been like, this is, wow, this is incredible. That would have been Jesus like that. Maybe not like all this, but he would have been excited. And that's what the language is trying to state. Jesus felt emotions. Some people would have looked at Jesus and been like, Jesus, calm down. Some of y'all want to say that to me all the time. Calm down. You can't contain this. You, you couldn't contain Jesus. <laughs> Mark chapter 3. Y'all killing me. If I said simmer down, see, then that would be the opposite of everything we're talking about, right? Mark chapter 3, listen to this, Jesus, he looked, he looked around at them, say it with me, angrily and was what? By their hard hearts. What are those words? It's the opposite of the emotions we're talking about now, but what does it tell you? He felt them, and he felt them and he expressed them because, again, same concept, it's expressive language, not internal response. You with me? So Jesus moves through life as this one who enjoys the company and celebration. He enjoys celebration. He enjoys, he enjoys the beauty and the wonder of, of, of humanity following God. And he's amazed by that and expresses that. And at the same time, he looks at hard hearts and he gets heartbroken over it. Now that's why it doesn't just say angry. It says he was deeply saddened. He was moved. And not just that. We know this story. 
And they went to the Mount of Olives. When they entered the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus says, sit here a while while I go pray. And Peter, James, and John's with him. And he becomes, say it with me, deeply troubled and distressed. And this is what he says, my soul is what? Crushed with what? To the point of death. Jesus feels the weight of grief in his body. Sometimes we act like God didn't have a body. That's why God became Jesus. He feels the weight of grief in his body. You're supposed to feel it in your body. You're allowed to because Jesus did. We know this story, right? When Jesus saw Mary crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. That word angry again is an indicative tense. He was expressively angry. Now, it's important for you to remember this text. Jesus, I don't believe, was angry with Mary and Martha. What I believe Jesus was angry with, because he loved Mary and Martha, and he loved Lazarus. I believe Jesus was angry at the reign of sin and death, breaking people's hearts, because God did not want people to feel this. So much so that he feels it. Because he was angry and he was deeply moved. And he says, where have you put him? And said, Lord, Lord, they told you, come and see. Jesus what? Wept. Now, the Greek word, this is the only time in your New Testament that this Greek word is used for crying. It literally means shed tears. Just so we wouldn't get confused and wonder if Jesus literally cried. And what, did the Jews, what were the Jews' response? See how he loved them? You know what this tells you about Jesus? Is that when you're weeping, he's weeping with you. And that is a healthy view of the Christ. And when you're celebrating, he's celebrating with you. That is a healthy view of the Christ. And we just read in our confession, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who. We're invited into a community of emotion. Because we feel. So my question then is, why are we so afraid of emotions? Are we afraid somehow that we'll go to the extremes? Do we treat emotions like we do grace? You know, like if you talk about grace too much, then that'll mean that anything goes. We think about it that way. And we say, well, if we, we start supporting people with emotional responses, all of a sudden we're going to be guided by our emotions. Is that what we think? Are we that emotional about emotions that we're scared of what they could do? That somehow we don't believe we have the Holy Spirit in us to guide us through these emotions, to teach us that we can influence the emotions that we have, that we can learn to process them, learn to talk them through, learn to exercise wisdom over them, associate the facts with them, and influence our emotions. And yet, do we forget sometimes that we have no control over having them, but we do have influence over our response to them? And are we somehow afraid that we will lose that if we allow emotions to serve? I remember years ago, about 12 years ago, I preached a series on sacred pathways. And one of the messages that was very memorable to me is memorable to me because of Kathy Poe. And it was on how in worship we should give ourselves permission, if we want, to express our bodies, to express our adoration to God with physical expression. If you really love someone and you're excited to see them, what do you do when they walk in the door? What do you do? 
There's a physical response. It may be a hug, a handshake, a high five, or something. It may be even this. If you're not a hugger, you may be like, ah! But at least you have a response, right, Sherry? At least you have a response. I'll never forget, Kathy was on the praise team. Now, some of you will not be able to imagine this. But our church used to not make a peep in worship. I know, I'm being sarcastic, right? Like, our church wouldn't clap during songs. You wouldn't see a lot of this at all when I first got here. We were raised in a tradition that didn't cultivate that kind of expression. I was raised in that tradition. Now, never forget, talking about this, and Kathy Poe, came to me and said, Fred, I have always wanted to just lift my hand to God, and for the first time in my life, I feel like I can. And that she did. Right. Because sometimes we just feel something. Sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's just this. And that's okay. What I'm not doing is trying to convince you to, you know, (laughs) do like Robin. I love it. When, I love this right here. I'm not, I like, I'm not asking you to do Be you is all I'm saying. Can you give yourself permission to be you, even in worship experiences? Because look at John 15. Look at John 15. I have told you these things so that you may be filled with my what? Joy. Yes, your joy will what? Overflow. And then the opposite of that, Luke 19, 41, as he came closer to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he began to what? Weep. And Hebrews 5, 7 reminds us that while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and say it with me, tears to the one who could rescue him from death. God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And this is Jesus. Now, I'm almost done because I want to ask you one last question. Okay, we see Jesus as one who feels and who expresses feelings. So we see Jesus giving permission to himself to feel and to express feelings. And maybe we gleam from that that we can give ourselves permission to feel and express feelings. And we know that if we don't, then we will be like a shaken up Coke and it will eventually spill out somewhere. And we know that our brains and our bodies are literally neurochemically and hormonally wired for feelings and emotions. We know that we can't control having them. We have them. We can only influence because if we can suck them down, that is influencing one's emotions, by the way. Letting it out is influence. Sucking it down is influence. Either way, we can influence them. Here's my question. How do you view God then? Like God. I know Jesus is God. But how do you view the God of the Hebrew Scriptures? We see the God of the Hebrew Scriptures as this emotionless God who just looks down at humanity, always angry and frustrated with how we act. The grandpa God of the sky. Right? I wonder, because your picture of God will shape your faith response to God. You with me? How you view God will shape how you live your faith because of, in, and through God. Well, Here's what the scriptures would tell us. We know that Isaiah made a promise about Jesus and said in Isaiah 53, 3, that he was despised and rejected. Say it with me. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. But we know, we go, okay, Fred, but that's a prophecy about Jesus, right? So in Genesis chapter 6, listen to the language of the text. When the Lord 
saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, this is before the flood, and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Read this with me. The Lord regretted that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So does God feel? Yes. Matter of fact, Jeremiah would want us to know, or let me say it this way, God through Jeremiah would want us to know that God feels. Listen to this remarkable display of God's grief, because this is God speaking through Jeremiah. My joy has flown away. Now, what do we know? God has joy. But in this story, God's joy has flown away. Grief has what? Settled on me. Read this with me. My heart is broken. Listen, the cry of my dear people from a faraway land is the Lord no longer in Zion or King not in her midst. Why have they angered me with their images, with worthless false idols? Chapter 9, verse 1. If only, it's one of my favorite texts in Scripture because of the poetry and the beauty and the sincerity of this divine grief, this divine expression of solidarity with humanity. God says, if only my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for the wounds of my people. When you hurt, God hurts because of the hurt. And when you feel joy, God feels joy because that is of, that, that is of God. That is the joy that God has intended for our lives. Jeremiah 13. But if you will not listen, my innermost being will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will overflow with tears for the Lord's flock has been taken captive. For some of us, we have this view of a God who is always angry. God is also sometimes weeping. God is sometimes laughing. God is sometimes filled with joy. God is sometimes filled with sorrow when the people that God made in God's own image are overrun by it all. When you cry out, where is God? Sometimes the answer is he's right with you weeping too. Now, Ezekiel's words will challenge certain Old Testament interpretations of God's violence, and so I hope it does, because I think we read that incorrectly. Or Ezekiel's not telling us the truth. Because he says, tell them, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, read this with me, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God isn't petty. And God isn't vengeful. But rather, that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. God is a God of life. God is a God of life. We live in a society of extremes, and I recognize that. On one extreme, we have the suck it up buttercup, be emotionally unavailable, you show emotions, you're showing signs of weakness and vulnerability, and that's the opposite of strength, that side. On this other side, we have the follow the heart, be guided by your emotions side. Both sides are missing the beauty and the breadth of emotions. Jesus holds both sides in tension. There's no middle he holds both sides in tension where I believe Jesus says, you are made for joy. And you are made in such a way that you will feel sorrow. You are made to feel. Because that's what love also does. Worship may be an act of the will, 
but it is allowed to express that act of the will in one's body with emotion. If you want to dance, dance. If you want to weep, weep. If you want to laugh, laugh. If you just want to sit there and be still, then sit there and be still. But either way, give yourself permission to be all that you were called to be. Because you know what Jesus as God in human form is teaching us? Jesus is teaching us what it means to be fully human as God intended. That's what the incarnation is about. We could not get humanity right. So God became one to show us what it would look like to be fully human in our bodies. What it would look like to love and to laugh and to weep and to have compassion and to feel righteous indignation and anger. What it would look like to love. So when we say things like, I'm only human, and we're saying that as a way of saying, I'm human and humans are imperfect, I want to push back and say, have a bigger theology. The answer is, I'm not fully human. Because Jesus has taught us what it means to be fully human. And what it looks like to live in the fullness of our human selves when we truly believe that Christ is the king. And that involves feeling. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.